Well, as we begin this chapter 17 this morning, we begin to see a pattern here in the life of this guy called Paul. It seems like wherever Paul is, there's trouble. He goes to Thessalonica, he ends up fleeing in the middle of the night. He goes to Berea, he ends up fleeing again to the coast. And so now we find that he's in, in Athens all by himself. Silas and Timothy, as partners, traveling partners, are in the previous town waiting to catch up. And so Paul's kind of the hot potato. You know, he's the one that keeps getting passed around. There must have been something very powerful and very forceful about Paul as he, we see him here on these journeys. Paul is in Athens. He's alone and he's, he's roaming around. It's the first time he's been there. And he is he's greatly disturbed by what he sees in this town. So let's just take a brief look at, at Athens. It is a great cultural center in Greece. It is also a great intellectual. All the great minds are here. People come here from other countries to, to come and to talk. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Harvard of the ancient world, the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle and, and these great guys and, and Roman philosophies were all very much part of this. Many world views were present here and many foreigners, as I mentioned. And so everywhere Paul goes, there are these temples and these gods, just a, a smorgasbord of gods. In fact, it was said you could find more gods in Athens than people. And so everywhere, you know, everywhere you looked, there was this, you know, it's kind of like going to uh, Hurley. You've been to Hurley? Everywhere you look, there's a tavern. More taverns than people in town, they say. That's how it was in Athens. Everywhere you turned, there was some kind of idol worship that was going on. One of the examples, just one of those is Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine and pleasure. And this is a god of festivity. He was born from the thigh of Zeus, as it was said. And he, this was, you know, this entitled people and encouraged people to be involved in these wild orgies. Uh, we are told that people would run around in the woods naked. And it was just a, an amazing thing. They had ritual prostitution. Uh, young gals at the age of 13 would be taken to the temple where they would spend the rest of their lives being ravished by men. If they got pregnant, there were very crude abortive techniques that were used. And so Paul here is very, very disturbed at what he sees going on in the worship of these idols. Well, the focus of what we're going to look at this morning, let me show you a picture of it, because this is a place... And uh, that high rock outcropping there is the Areopagus. And that's a place where all of these philosophers would come and they would just share, you know, the latest philosophy and the latest worldview. And it was on that very place where we see a good part here of this taking, you know, taking place in chapter 17. And so let's just take a moment and see how Paul ends up up on top of that hill called Areopagus. Paul is in the synagogue. He's reasoning with the Jews there. He's 
He's out with the Greeks and he's reasoning with them and he's in the marketplace and he's reasoning with people and so word's getting out of this new philosophy, this new teaching that is, is taking place. We see that some of these philosophers got into a debate with Paul. And so, if, if you look at Acts 17 there, verses 19 and 20, it almost sounds here a bit forceful because it says, then they took him, it says they took him, not like they invited him, but they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing us some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. It said there were two groups of guys. There were the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Now the Epicureans were all about pleasure. They were uh, very peace, you know, they, they promoted peace, uh, no guilt about anything. It was all about just pleasure and peace and enjoyment in life. That was the Epicureans' philosophy. They believed in a God, but they didn't believe He was involved in the life of people. Then there were the Stoics, and these are the people that were all about duty. They're all about moral responsibility and duty. You know, we get that word, we say someone's very stoic. It means they just kind of, they don't, if everybody else is laughing, they're very serious. These were very serious people and felt that life was one big, long duty. So they take Paul and they take him there to, to hear him out. And so here's where we want to focus this morning. In verse 22 it says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious. Interesting opening because he begins here by affirming their, at least their openness to religious things. And so then he, what he does is he begins moving into sharing who God is. And he does so by... We see here setting the stage with this altar to an unknown God. And so what Paul's doing here is he's looking for common ground. He's looking for some way to connect with these people. And so he tells, he said, you know, I was roaming around and I saw, these, saw this altar to an unknown God. And uh, the story on that, I shared this a few years ago, but <clears throat> the story is that there was a plague about 600 years before this. A plague had been going on in Athens. And it just wouldn't go away. And so someone came forth with an idea. They took a herd of sheep. And they let them loose. And wherever that sheep would lay down, they would sacrifice that sheep right there to the, to the God whose temple the, the sheep laid down closest to. And so if a sheep laid down by the temple of Dionysus, they would sacrifice it there to the god of Dionysus. Well, there were some sheep that just went way off and they didn't lay, lay down by any temple or they couldn't tell where it was. So just to cover all their bases, they sacrificed the lamb and they said, we're going to sacrifice this lamb to whatever unknown god this is. And so Paul picks up on that and he says... I, you know, I noticed that you have this altar to this unknown God. 
Well, let me tell you about that God. Let me tell you about this God that you don't understand and, and you don't yet know. And so then he goes into this, this talk that he gives to them on the Areopagus. And so he starts in this way. He says, first of all, God is very transcendent. This God that you don't know, He is huge. He is bigger than you could ever imagine. He is beyond us. He is the one that created the heavens and the earth. Now remember, these folks had literally hundreds of gods. You know, there was a God of the sun, and there was a God of the moon, and there was a God of planets, and there was a God of this, and the God of, of different things on the earth. And, and now Paul stands up and says, there is one God who made it all. There is one God who is over every other God. Or as Paul would say, idol. And so, He is the Creator of everything. He made the heavens and the earth. He's also the Sustainer. He is the one that sustains everything. You live and move and, and have your being because of this God who sustains everything that goes on. That's how big He is. And He's also the Ruler. So he talks about three roles of this guy. He's creator, he's sustainer, and he's the ruler of all things. In fact, the ancient Romans felt that you know, each nation had come from, from different gods. And Paul says, there is one God over all nations, and he's placed all those nations where he wants them at the time that he wanted them there. And so, God is very big, but God is also... Contrary to what they felt in many of the gods, God is also very, I'm going to use a word here, imminent, which means he's, he's very personal, He's very close, He's very near. You know, they felt that gods were, were very distant from people, that you had to appease the gods. And so, here Paul says, you know, we are His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. And you know what? He's not very far from any one of you. Very different thinking for the people. He's not made of silver or stone. This is a personal God. This is not something you create with your hands. This is a very personal God. And He's also personal in that one day He is going to come and He is going to judge every person on the face of the earth. Contrary to what the Epicureans thought, that God was out there and He didn't care. Paul says, no, He will come and He will judge every one of you. And so as he goes through this here, he's... He's challenging. He's challenging all sorts of things that he has observed here in the culture. And we're told that some laughed, especially when Paul talked about raising, being raised from the dead. And a few people, not a lot, but a few people believed. Interestingly, one of them was a, a member of the Areopagus named Dionysus. And another was a very prominent woman here named Maris, and so probably a very predominant woman philosopher of that time. So that's the story. And it's a, we can assume that what we have here is just a condensed version. Uh, we could probably assume that Paul talked for a long time, and, but we get the sense here of what he spoke about. So this morning, let's ask the question. You know, how do we apply this? to our lives. 
What does this mean? What can we take away in terms of what does this have to do with us today being called by God to reach our world? Well, there's lots of similarities. I think the, the biggest one is that we too are very rapidly becoming a very pluralistic culture. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, there's some of us here today that can remember when there was a time when 90% of the people in this country agreed upon and lived by what we call a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, you know, people, people had variances. Not everybody went to church. Not everybody honored God. But, but everybody had a sense of, you know, there was the Bible and there was God and, and there was Christ and there were churches and there were different denominations. And then there were a few sideline strange things. But... By and large, it was a Judeo-Christian ethic. You know, the Ten Commandments were fine on the wall, and we just accepted those things. There was a, a common worldview in terms of the Judeo-Christian ethic. You know, God was God, and sin was sin. Not that people didn't sin, but it wasn't a time when people would deny that it was wrong. You know, if you slept with your girlfriend, it was pretty well accepted that that was wrong. Even though people did it, it was understood. There was a, there was a common uh, <coughs> understanding of a lot of these things. We find that now our world has changed significantly. In the last 30 years, this world has significantly changed. And I think as, as happened in Israel, they came to a point where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the criteria for truth is no longer the Bible. It's, it's, it's what's right for you. And so what we find is that there are, are many ways to God. There are many views about God, many views about life. And here's a definition of a pluralistic culture. It's a culture that affirms many different worldviews. A culture that affirms many different worldviews. And notice the word affirms there. I'm not saying a culture that allows many worldviews. Our country has always allowed many worldviews. And if you want to believe in Iraq, in this country, it has always been known that you can do that. But when the predominant group of people begins to say that if you believe in a rock, that's as valid as someone who believes in a transcendent God. That's a whole different thing. And that is where we have moved in this country. It's where we are moving. Uh, you know, in other words, there is no belief system that is more valid than another. Just to demonstrate that, I would like to uh, I'd like you to just watch this on the street. Uh, interview. It's called The Worship of Poe. And as, as you watch these young college students wrestling with different worldviews, there is just an incredibly uh, strong, powerful resistance to making any kind of judgment upon any worldview that's present in our day. Do you think there's any one religion that's better than any others? Um, not really. I think everyone has their own beliefs. No? I don't believe so. I don't think so. I think it's whatever you believe in and what you believe in is the important thing, so... No. No. Do you think any one religion is better than any other? No. 
You think that all ways to worship or approach God would be equally valid? Like, you know, if I wanted to do peyote or animal sacrifice or whatever. Uh, I lean away from the whole sacrificial kind of deal, but yeah, you don't tell me how to worship my God and I won't tell you how to worship yours. But you think it would be wrong if I were to sacrifice animals in my worship? No, not wrong. If the human mind conceives it, then it can't be wrong. I think everybody should find their own way to God. It's up to the person how they wish to worship. Probably. I'm not that religious myself, so I'm kind of like open to like whatever. Some cultures take uh, peyote or drugs and things like that. Some worship idols. Some sacrifice animals. Do you think those are all appropriate or valid ways to worship God? They're all different. It doesn't mean one's wrong and one's right. Uh, I don't advocate uh, sacrificing animals for the sake of God, but definitely if you have a belief, uh, you've got to follow that, but definitely sacrificing animals is not the way to do it. Uh, as long as there's limitations within there that it doesn't get out of hand. Um, like a human sacrifice would be a, l a bit much. Well, I mean, everyone has their own rights, so that's pretty much what I think. <laughs> but are they all valid, is my question. To whoever believes in them, yeah. I'm, no, it doesn't really matter to me. You don't really care about this topic, do you? Not really. <laughs> this is my god. Okay. This is the idol that I worship. Are you familiar with this idol? Yes. This is, do you know who this is? I, I know it's one of the Teletubbies, that's all I know. This is Poe. Okay, Poe. <laughs> Would you like to worship Poe? No, I wouldn't want to worship Poe. But you can worship Poe all you want. <laughs> that's great. I like Poe because Poe does good things for my life. And, um, you know, do you think that this would be a valid way to worship God? Uh, it's, as I said, it's up to you. It's, if you think that that is something that you believe in, then I'm not going to stand in your way, and if other people want to follow you, then that's great. Would it be as good as your approach to God? Uh, I don't know. It, I would have to experience it to find out. Let's say I wanted to worship this guy right here. Uh-huh. Would that be equally valid uh, to your approach to God? Like, this is my God right here. Yeah, okay. So what do you want me to do, confirm or deny it? Well, yeah, is that as good as your approach to God? Yeah. Let's say yeah. And there's a group of you that, you know, could get your kicks by worshiping Poe, and that's sort of where you go, and it builds solidarity, great. If I wanted to worship Poe. <laughs> Teletubby? <laughs> not just any Teletubby. This is Poe. Poe is special. And he gives meaning to my life. <laughs> well, you think this is, that this worship of Poe would be just as valid as maybe your way to approach God? Probably. I'm kind of one of those people. It's like, whatever you want to do, just do it. I guess. I mean, if that's what you believe in. I don't think it's, like, necessarily wrong. Yeah, sure. If that's what you feel like worshiping, knock yourself out. Hey, why not? <laughs> well, definitely. It is, it, it's not wrong, actually. I mean, if you think that's, that's the way to do it, I mean... If he's changed your life in a good way, that's great. <laughs> if you think that, that my approach to God, uh, you know, as uh, worshiping this toy, is just as valid as your approach, what's that say about your approach? It's, I just says that it's different. It's not wrong and it's not right. It's just different. I guess you could believe that God takes shape and Poe. My approach to God is simply God or God and me. So as far as what your approach to your God is, hey, 
whatever you want to do, man. <laughs> what does that say about uh, the way you approach God if you think that my worshiping a toy would be equally valid to the way you worship God? It's just, I mean, that's what I told you, just the way you just see things. I mean, sometimes people just don't accept a particular form of God, but sometimes people just have some of idol worship. If it's your path, then I'm not going to knock it. Okay. I'm not going to try and change it. So my worship of this toy is equally valid to your uh, approach? For you. Interesting. That's the shift in our culture. I was really glad he thought eh, human sacrifice was a bit much. And uh, <clears throat> that was the challenge in Paul's day as he walked into Athens. And I really believe that's the challenge of our day. How do we address people in this culture without being offensive? And perhaps we cannot. But also perhaps like Paul, we can understand that we need to be aware and if we're going to reach our audience, that we have to be sensitive to them. Uh, Paul, when he spoke to the Jews, he had a whole different approach than we see here at the Areopagus. Totally different approach. You know, there are many people in our culture who know nothing about Jesus. And we can't just necessarily walk up to people who don't know anything about Jesus. They don't uh, understand what sin is. They don't sense a need for forgiveness. And so, there is a lot, I believe, we can learn from this account. I think the cultures <coughs> are becoming increasingly similar in which you and I live. And so, what Paul here gives them is this big picture. It's the big story. And culture today loves narratives. They love stories. They love They'd love probably to hear your story. But don't expect your story to be their story. Did you hear that in the, in the interviews? I mean, that's great that you want to worship Paul. But everybody can have their own story, and every story is equally valid. And what the culture cannot accept, and what becomes a challenge for us, is they cannot accept what we call the meta-narrative. And... What the meta-narrative is, that's the one big story that defines all other stories. The culture hates the meta-narrative. You, know, you can have a story, but don't tell me there's one story that defines everybody else's story. You know, there's a story in India, there's a story in China, every culture has their own story, but don't tell me that there's just one story. Don't criticize or judge somebody else's story because you think you have the one story. That was the challenge in Paul's day. And by the way, that is why he kept being chased from one town to the next. Let me just close here with a just kind of a how do we do evangelism in culture today? These are five things. I'm just going to mention them. You can jot them down. Things to consider as, as you think about reaching this culture in which we live. Number one, and we take this out of Paul's example here, discover people's story. Don't just come up to people and start talking about 
Jesus. I mean, there may be a situation where you feel led to do that, but by and large, in this culture, that does not work. And we see here that Paul took time to go around town. You know, he found this altar to an unknown God. He developed some understanding of the people that he was speaking to. You know, a better thing, if you're meeting somebody, you sit down on a bus or a plane or, you know, on a bench, is to say, tell me your story. You know, are, are you a, you know, do you have, are you interested in spiritual things? Tell me about it. Listen to people. We don't this, we, we, we can't just come up and start talking at people. We need to listen to them. And so Paul here, you know, you, you get the sense that he's, he's trying to listen to this culture and understand what is going on, how they think in the culture in which he's trying to reach. Here's the second one. Share the big picture. Share the big picture. You know, people today are, are looking for a God that is big and transcendent, bigger than all the problems. And they're also looking for a God that's personal, a God that they can experience. And so, you know, there's a drama that's going on. There's a story that's going on. You know, rather than coming up and saying, you know, you need Jesus. We need to go back. Paul starts with the creation story. He starts by saying, look around you. Everything that's here was by, created by this, this God. And so, the bigger story is something that we need to set the gospel in the context of. Number three, find a place in the story that they can enter. Find a place to pick people up in the story. For example, to say, you know, one of the places you pick, everybody understands that something's very wrong in the world. There's no shortage of pain. There's no shortage of brokenness. And so to agree with people, to, you know, can, can you agree with me that this is really a broken world? People go, yeah. This is a broken world. That's an entry point. So how does the Gospel speak to that broken world? Paul here finds a place when he says, I saw this altar to this unknown God. He picked up his whole audience because they knew what that was all about. And then he said, let me tell you then about this unknown God. It was something that they could accept where Paul picks them up. Number four. Lead them to the truth of their guilt before God. This, this is where it gets done. And this is where we can fail as a church. Because if we present God as the great fixer, as the genie in the bottle, they're going to be disappointed. Because God doesn't fix everything. If we present God as the great psychologist who will heal all the emotional issues and so forth, we're still not addressing the primary need. And so, some way we have to figure out a, a way to lead people to that place where they understand that they are guilty before a holy God. If we don't bring people to that place, then... Jesus will never be known as their Savior. And you know what? That's the place where people may turn and walk away. That's the place where people may reject you. That's the place where opposition sets in. 
So if we think we can share the true gospel and circumvent this truth that people are guilty before a holy God, then we bypass the holy issue of repentance required to receive the gospel. And then, finally, we share the Jesus story. You know, Paul always gets to the Jesus story. You know, even here he gets to that point where he's saying, you know, there's this one, the appointed one, who was raised from the dead. And that becomes the kernel of the gospel. Do you believe in this Christ who was raised from the dead? Robbie Zacharias is, I think, one of the most brilliant minds of our day. I see him as a contemporary Francis Schaeffer kind of person. He's probably one of the most respected in secular campuses around the world and is invited to speak uh, all over the world. He's been invited to speak this spring on a campus which last year had Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of the strongest proponents of atheism that there is. And you know, why do you go from Dawkins to Ravi Zacharias? Well, the school said we believe in diversity. And so he is going to be speaking there. And in a recent interview with him, this is what he said. He said, I have never seen in 30 years, he's been doing this, college campuses for 30 years. He says, I have never seen in 30 years the kind of spiritual hunger that's going on in this country among the upcoming generation. Not in 30 years have I seen this kind of hunger. And so we have a great opportunity. But we must be students of the culture. We must understand our culture. We must seek ways to connect with our culture. We may understand it takes a lot more time in this culture for people to process. We can't demand instant solutions. We need to share truth and invite people to spend time processing, thinking, and, and moving people because people are a lot farther away from the Gospel than they were years ago. They may not like our approaches. They may not like our our traditions, they may not like our style, but they may like Jesus. And somehow we've, we've got to get around our approaches and our traditions and our styles and, and find a way, and find a way to connect Jesus to our culture. Father, I thank you this morning for this example from Paul in Athens. Father, as as we seek as a congregation to reach our community in a dynamic way, we, Father, find that we need to be students of our culture. We need to understand. And Father, perhaps one of the things we need to understand most deeply uh, is that people in our culture desperately need Christ and people in our culture are desperately searching for something. And so we would pray that, Father, you might just uh, teach us. And might we have the passion that we, we see here in the book of Acts of these early Christians who, who just made it, the, in some ways, the sole purpose of the day from when they got up in the morning to when they went to bed at night is to be open to sharing the gospel with the people in their culture. 
Father, I also pray here this morning, just for anyone who might be visiting with us here, maybe been coming here a long time, who have yet to open their life to Christ. And uh, we just pray that for anyone's heart that's open today, that they would pursue those uh, promptings of your Spirit and that they might respond to the amazing work of Jesus Christ. Father, we just take a moment and uh, we just probably we ponder someone that you might bring to our heart today that we can just lift up to you. Father, we worship you now with our gifts. Thank you for all the ways you blessed us. And we give back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.